This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Seated. Kids, if you're going to class, yes? Okay, good. Should be somebody back there. If not, enjoy. Let's pray before we go to the Word. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. Thank you for the gift of your Word and the opportunity to go to it. And this morning, Father, we, we look to your Word, especially for the hope and the courage, the glory, the gift that we have in our risen Savior. And so, Father, it is Him that I pray you glorify through your word this morning. And it is through him I pray you would grow us closer to this morning through your word, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, good morning. It's great to see you all. We are going to wrap up our study of Habakkuk in chapter 3 this morning. If you want to start heading there in your Bibles. Don't be afraid to use your concordance or your, con- what's that, table of context text. Concordance isn't going to help you. <laughs> I thought I'd start off this morning by giving you a brief tour of how the ADD mind works. If you feel led afterwards, my wife is here on the front row <coughs> for condolences and <laughs> consolation. But I was watching this show the other day about how other countries view Americans. And most of it was the usual, you know, we're all too fat and work too hard and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But they said one thing that I hadn't heard before. They said that other countries think some Americans are too loud. And I was like, no, we're not. That's dumb. But then I watched another show about Karens yelling at people. And ironically, most of them were Americans. And after I thought about it for a while, it dawned on me. Can you imagine if someone from another country hushed someone in America? Like if somebody from another country on a bus or in a restaurant or something like that told an American, like, be quiet. All hell would break loose. It would be a nightmare. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized there is something loud baked into us. It's like a a kind of unwritten second half of the First Amendment that says, I have the right to free speech and you have to listen. It's that don't tread on me DNA that we're issued at the hospital that causes us to speak out loudly sometimes, especially if we don't like how things are going. So as I was studying this week, I began to wonder, how quiet do you feel like being these days? I mean, it doesn't matter what side of the political aisle you're on. As you watch our country descend into chaos, are you just like, yeah, I probably should just be quiet? Like when you read a story by NPR last Friday that said science has confirmed that there really is no difference between male and female athletes. I mean, at least we know now for sure that nobody at NPR ever played any sports. 
Or maybe you heard the story about a week ago about a parking garage worker in the Bronx named Musa Diara, who was shot twice by a thief before he was able to wrestle the gun away from the thief and shoot the thief with his own gun. The police arrested the parking, lot, the parking garage worker for attempted murder and criminal possession of a weapon. Do stories like that make you just want to go quietly about your day like nothing's wrong? Or do you feel the need to say something? Because at the beginning of this book, Habakkuk felt the same way as many of us do today. He felt like he needed to say something, like, God, why aren't you doing anything about all of the, the wickedness and injustice that's going on all around? But something changed. After feeling this need to say something, to speak up, at the beginning of the book, look what Habakkuk says at the end of our passage this morning in chapter 3, verse 16. He says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. So Habakkuk went from being unable to keep his mouth shut to yet I will be quiet and wait for the day of trouble. So what happened? Well, chapter 3, verse 1 and 2 tells us what happened. It says beginning in verse 2, this is a, a prayer that Habakkuk is saying. It says in verse 2, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. And in wrath, remember mercy. So what happened? What report did Habakkuk hear? Well, that's what the rest of chapter 3 tells us. The rest of chapter 3 is about how Habakkuk was reminded that the Lord has already proven he will fight for his people. And this morning I want to convince you of that same thing. This morning I want to persuade you that we too must remember that God has already proven he will fight for us. He's already proven he will fight for us. And how are we going to do that? Well, I think the same way as Habakkuk. We need to be reminded of the same things as Habakkuk was in chapter 3. We need to be reminded of who our God is and what he has already done. Excuse me. So I've titled this message. <clears throat> I've titled this message, He Came, They Saw, He Crushed. He Came, They Saw, He Crushed, because that's the basic structure of this passage. Look at the beginning of verse 3. It says, God came from Timon and the Holy One of, from Mount Paran. And then look at the first half of half verse 10. The mountains saw you and writhed. And then look at the second half of verse 13. It says, you crushed the head of the house of the wicked. So that's the basic layout of what we're going to see this morning. And what we also need to remember is that God came, they saw, and he crushed so look first at, at, at verse 3 where Habakkuk was reminded of when God came. It says, God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. 
His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? Now, this imagery that that Habakkuk is describing here is, is mostly about when God showed up in Exodus. And basically what Habakkuk is remembering is that when God showed up, it was pretty rough on everyone and everything except for his people. Verse 5 is about when God rolled into Egypt and plagues and pestilence followed him and decimated everything and everybody except for his people. And then in verse 8, it's about when they crossed the Red Sea. But notice how Habakkuk says it. He Basically, he asks, were you mad at the oceans and the rivers, God? It's like when a parent enters a room angry. And all the kids flee, hoping not to be seen. The Red Sea was like, angry God, angry God, and was trampling over itself to try to get out of God's way, is what he's describing here. That's what what Habakkuk says happened when God showed up in Egypt. But then in the second half of verse 3, Habakkuk describes what happened when God showed up at Mount Sinai. He says... His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. He says in verse 6, he stood and measured the earth and he looked and shook the nations. In other words, when God showed up to Mount Sinai, there was thunder and lightning and the mountain was quaking. And when he showed up there, the people were very clear. Let's put it that way. The people went to Moses and they said, hey, Moses, listen, we got a great idea. How about you go talk to him and we'll stay here? And as as afraid as they were, as terrified they were, Habakkuk tells us that that was God's power veiled. That's what Habakkuk remembered. He remembered that time when God showed up before and nations and mountains and oceans and rivers got out of his way as fast as they could. The question is that we need to ask ourselves this morning is what does that say about us when we feel like evil is winning in our culture? When we feel like evil is winning, what does hearing about what God has done in the past say about us? Doesn't that mean that that we think God is not watching? Doesn't, we, doesn't that mean that we think that God has, has, has forgotten about us? Doesn't that mean that we have forgotten about the last time he showed up? But that's just he came. Look at what Habakkuk remembers happened when they saw in verse 9. He says, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, meaning he's about to do something. 
You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. So again, in the first half of of, of verse 10, Habakkuk is remembering what happened when Mount Sinai saw God. The language here of writhed. Your translation might say trembled or shuddered. It denotes pain and fear. It's a word that the Bible usually uses in in relation to to childbirth. Now, I don't know about childbirth. I've never been through childbirth. I've heard it's pretty bad. But I have stepped on a Lego at night. (laughs) So I don't know. But either way, like a woman in labor or stepping on a Lego at night, the point is, is that when the mountains saw God, they writhed in fear fear and pain and, 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 and tried to get out of his way. But in the second half of verse 10, Habakkuk goes all the way back to Noah. And he says, the deep gave forth its voice. What does that mean? Well, it's like the deep, what he's saying is it's like the deep choked on its waters when it saw God. It's like the deep saw God halfway through a swallow, choked on the water, and coughed up the seas and the flood at this terrible sight of God. It's like after Noah got in the boat and was safe, God went, boo, and the deeps freaked out and coughed up a flood. But in verse 11 and 12, Habakkuk fast-forwards all the way to when Joshua conquered Canaan. You remember uh, in Joshua where it says that God made the sun stand still for a day so Israel would have enough time to to defeat the kings, the five kings that had banded together to, to, to defeat him, and he rained down hailstones. But here's the thing that's so neat. The the way Habakkuk puts it is that it was more like a deer being startled and standing perfectly still. He says it's like the sun saw God and thought, if I don't move, he won't see me. And I'm sure you've seen a picture of a bull or a a mule pulling a large stone in a circle around a groove. That's called a millstone, and it's one way you can thresh wheat. You fill up that groove with with wheat. You roll this millstone over it to separate the outer hull from the inner hull. What Habakkuk says in verse 12 is that's what God was doing to the nations. Like dragging a massive millstone through Canaan. When his people moved into the promised land, God was crushing the enemies of Israel. Until eventually, he says in verse 12 and the beginning of 13, Habakkuk remembers when God established the nation and set the line of David on the throne. And even the queen of Egypt came and paid homage when, he, when she saw what, what God had done. That's what happened when they saw God. The deep choked on the water it was holding in. The sun was afraid to move, and kings and queens had a choice. They could bend the knee or be slaughtered. 
you know something interesting, no matter how hard you try, you have been designed so that you can only focus on one thing. And if you don't believe me, you have a chance sometime, hold up your thumb about an arm's length of way and hold it up so that it's kind of next to something in the distance. Light switch, doorknob, thermostat, something like that. And try to focus on them both at the same time. You can't do it. You can't focus on two things at the same time. And as an added bonus, I get to think about you guys going home and trying this now, because I know you will. <laughs> but what does that mean when we get caught up and anxious and overwhelmed at what's going on in our culture? When we start to wonder, like Habakkuk, why isn't God doing anything? Why does it seem like evil is winning? What does that mean then? Because it's the same just as it is spiritually, as physically as it is spiritually. It's the same thing. Meaning when we think this world is winning, then we cannot be focused on God. We're focused on the wrong thing. We're looking at the wrong thing. We cannot be focused on God because we've forgotten what happened the last time the world saw him. But that's just he came and they saw. What about the last part? What about he crushed? That's what Habakkuk remembers beginning in the second half of verse 13. He says, You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. In other words, God's horses don't just trample people, they trample oceans. Like the hoof of a horse displacing the water in a small puddle, Habakkuk is saying that God's horses displaced the Red Sea. And in doing so, Habakkuk remembers how his God crushed the head of Egypt, Israel's enemies, when that water returned and drowned them. And when Habakkuk remembers all of this, when he remembers what happened when God came, when he remembers what happened when they saw, when he remembers what happened when God crushed, when his focus is reoriented on the right person, look again at what he says in verse 16. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. This reminds me of a psalm written by a guy named Asaph. He was a band member of David's. It's Psalm 73 if you want to check it out later. We're not going to look at it now. You don't need to turn to it. I'm going to summarize it. <clears throat> but in Psalm 73, at the beginning of this psalm, Asaph is lamenting because of the success of the wicked. He says things like they get rich and they get fat and, and they don't experience any pain. He says they don't even die uncomfortably. They, they die comfortably, he says. And he says they wear their pride as a necklace. And everybody wants to follow them because it's obvious that whatever they're doing is working. And Asaph goes so far as to say, I have kept my life pure in vain. 
Like I try so hard to do the right thing and, and be righteous, but it doesn't mean anything. The wicked still succeed. In fact, he says the wicked use me as an example of, of why not to do things right. Until in the middle of this psalm, Asaph says this. He says, and when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. How about you? Does trying to figure out this world seem like a wearisome task? Like, does it wear you out trying to figure out why evil succeeds? Like, don't you kind of feel beat down when you read the news? Maybe you're like, no, because I stopped reading the news a long time ago. Okay, still the same thing. Like, haven't you kind of thrown your hands up when it comes to our culture? Like, as long as it doesn't directly involve me, whatever. You know, if you're new here and you feel that way, I want you to know you're not alone. I can promise you that this isn't the kind of church that says everything goes perfectly if you do the right things. I can guarantee you if I asked for a raise of hands, every single person in here would raise their hand saying that they have been wearied trying to figure out why this world is the way that it is. You're not alone. I mean, even the Bible says that's where Habakkuk and Asaph were. But Asaph says something else in Psalm 73. He said, but when I thought to figure out how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until, until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. It seemed like a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. And then he goes on in the rest of this psalm to describe how after he was reminded of who God is, he remembered that the wicked are not succeeding. They're just stacking up evidence against themselves. And I thought, you know, maybe you don't know about this second part. Maybe all you know is that this world is wearisome and you have not been in the sanctuary yet. You have not seen God. You don't believe Him. And so you have nothing else but a wearisome world. If that's you, then I ask you to please listen. Because brothers and sisters, those of you who do believe, this is exactly what we need this morning. We need to remember the same thing as Asaph and Habakkuk. We need to remember that our God has already proven He will fight for us. Because here's the thing, what Habakkuk is remembering wasn't just a one-time event. No, it was a recurring event that was stemming from a singular promise. You see, way back before God promised Habakkuk that he would crush Israel's enemies, God made a promise to crush another enemy. All the way back in the garden, before Israel ever existed, God promised that he would crush the head of the serpent, mankind's enemy. 
And then God spent about the next 4,000 years demonstrating what he meant by that as he marched through the world in fury and threshed the enemies of his people. But all of that was just a foreshadow. All of that was just a warm-up for when he would really fulfill his promise to crush the house of the wicked. Because you see, there was another time he came. There was another time he came, but this time nobody got out of the way. Nobody thought he was imposing or scary. And he didn't bring pestilence and plague with him. In fact, he brought healing and peace. There was another time that they saw. There was another time they saw God. But this time they didn't see anything to be afraid of. This time nobody stood still for fear of being seen by him. In fact, the Bible tells us that thousands of people flocked to him. That is, that is until something happened. That is until they saw him hung on a cross. That is until they saw God's anointed one bleeding to death for the sins of his creation. That is until they saw that once and for all, God's true anointed had crushed for all time the head of the house of the wicked. When they saw that, when the world saw him, Jesus Christ, dying on a cross, the sun again went into hiding. The mountains again began to quake. And, and battle-hardened soldiers again ran in fear. But that wasn't the end of it. That was not the end of it. Because three days after they put him in a tomb, they saw something else. They saw him walk out of that tomb, having crushed our enemies. And when they saw that, listen, sin and death ran for the hills. When they saw that, when they saw Christ walk out of the tomb, like a, like a cockroach trying to escape a boot... I should say like a snake trying to escape a heel. Sin tried to get as far away from him as the east is from the west. And darkness, well, poor darkness didn't have anywhere to hide. As it was threshed by the blinding light of the risen king walking out of the tomb. That's what they saw. That's what they saw the last time he came. Brothers and sisters, when this world seems like it's winning, just like Habakkuk, this is what we need to remember. We must remember the last time our God came, the last time they saw, the last time he crushed. Because when we do, when we do remember that, then I promise you this, we can follow in the footsteps of Habakkuk and Asaph. We can follow in the footsteps of their faith that was fueled by the truth that our God has already proven He will fight for His people. And what does that look like? What does it look like when we remember that God has already fought for us? Well, again, in verse 16, Habakkuk says, I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver. Rottenness enters my bones, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble. 
In other words, brothers and sisters, when we remember the last time our God came like Habakkuk, we can live quietly. And I don't mean quietly like never speaking out against evil or confronting sin. I mean quietly like not having the need to tell God he's doing something wrong. Quietly like our fear is rightly reoriented. Quietly like Isaiah on his face in Isaiah 6. Quietly like Saul on his face on the road to Damascus. Quietly like John on his face in Revelation. That kind of quiet. Because you see, when, when we see God rightly, this world doesn't frighten us anymore. When we truly understand and see who our God is, when we enter the sanctuary and see His power and His authority and His judgment, this world's like a fluffy pink unicorn. It doesn't mean anything. It's soft. Compared to our God, this world's power is impotent. Compared to our God, this world's anger is like a good joke. Compared to our God, this world's end is coming. Again, that doesn't mean we're not frightened. No, it just means when we see our God rightly, we go quiet. Because He is far more frightening than anything in this world. However, Habakkuk tells us that there is one thing that will break that silence. When we remember that our God has already proven that He will fight for us, there is one thing that will disrupt that quiet. Look at verse 17. Habakkuk says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Basically he's saying, if my life falls apart, if everything goes down the tubes, verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength, not my circumstances. He makes me feel like the deers. He makes me tread on my high places. When we remember that the last time our God came, He proved without a doubt that He will fight for His people. When we stay focused on that, that silence will be overwhelmed by a joy that cannot be overcome by anything this world can do to us, by anything they can take. When we remember that God already proved on the cross that He will fight for us, when we remember that our God already proved that He will fight for His people in the grave, when we remember that our God already proved He will fight for His people when he walked out of that tomb victorious over sin and death, like Habakkuk says in verse 17, we can say, bring it, world. Give me what you got. Take everything. I don't care. Take anything you want from me. Take my income. Take my freedom. Take my house and my guns and my rights. Take it all because my God has already proven he will fight for me. So I will stand quietly. Quietly under your assault, quietly under your oppression, quietly under your per persecution. I'll stand quietly under that and I'll wait for the day of your trouble. I'll wait for the day 
then my God comes and crushes you. However, while I wait for that day, in the face of the worst that you have to offer, I will rejoice in the fact that my Savior, Jesus Christ, has crushed sin and death under His feet. I will rejoice in the fact that in the face of my God, wickedness still flees in terror. I will rejoice in the fact that this world still winces at the blinding light of my Savior who walked out of that grave. When I remember that Jesus Christ commanded that stone to get out of His way on the third day, He ascended to the right hand of the Father and sat down on that throne with His enemies and mine under His feet. When I remember that, you will not be able to take away my joy. You can't do it. Kill me. Awesome. Thank you. Because I know that my Redeemer lives. What hope this sweet assurance gives. That He who gave His life for me arose with healing in His wings. He lives. The tomb is empty still. Redemption's promise He fulfilled. No condemnation now remains. The stone of death is rolled away. But enough about me. How about you? Are you going to remember that your God has already proven He will fight for you when He walked out of that grave? If you will, please stand with me and rejoice with me that our Redeemer lives.